Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on today's show, we welcome Mark McQueen, former president and executive director of CIBC Innovation Banking, to discuss his journey from politics into banking and how Mark has seen the tech industry change over his 25-year career. We discuss Mark's upbringing around the political elite on Parliament Hill and how that shaped his views in life and why being authentic and transparent is a cornerstone of Mark's philosophy in life. We dig into Mark's journey into the finance world first at the Bank of Montreal as a bank teller and eventually to his creation of Wellington Financial as a startup merchant bank during the early 2000s. Mark shares how Wellington survived both the dot-com bubble and the global financial crisis as a debt provider and how he eventually sold the firm to CIBC in 2018. Lastly, Mark gives us his honest opinions on where the Canadian venture landscape has improved and where it is still lacking change. But most importantly, Mark explains how he fell in love with the band Pearl Jam and how the band has changed his and his entire family's lives. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's interview with Mark McQueen. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Mark. Really excited to have you. You know, it's been a pleasure to get to spend some time with you uh, over the years. And, you know, I've been a follower of yours on Twitter for a while now, and I know you're never shy to share your opinions on many topics. But before we get into all the nitty gritty of that, I would love if you can give our audience a brief background on your journey first into politics and then how you made your way into finance and eventually the entrepreneurial world. I was born into a family, a school teacher, mother, and a journalist father who got distracted, uh, my dad, uh, by politics uh, when Robert Stanfield was leader of the opposition and Pierre Trudeau was prime minister. And so he spent six years, uh, we all did, in Ottawa, and he was a press secretary to the leader of opposition at the time. So as a young kid, I kind of grew up in that environment. My first love, other than my grade two teacher, Miss Worry, was uh, fishing. Photography captured me as a different way to uh, in, in public school uh, to be around politics without actually having to be involved in politics. So wound up doing news photography in high school and into university, and uh, so went to some political conventions and uh, took some pictures of politicians like Trudeau and the Queen proclaiming the Constitution and whatnot as a teenager and. Uh, wound up i think that probably set the uh, set the bait on politics as a kind of pre pre-university and then once university got going uh brian mulrooney won the 84 uh landslide uh, uh election and uh, became president of the pc club at uh, western which was the biggest one in the country at the time and did the model parliament prime minister thing and got involved in student politics and and so the first job I had to have, of course, coming out of university uh, three weeks later was to work on Parliament Hill um, just before the 80 election. So, I mean, your father, Rod McQueen, was an award-winning business journalist and an author who obviously impacted you a lot, uh, which I've read. Can you tell us any sort of lessons you learned from your father that instilled sort of some you know, vote of confidence in anything you achieved in life and you know, how you've used that to help you power through any stressful times? Look, I, I, I can tell you uh, in both cases, um, growing up, with parents who uh, were active in their communities and uh, surround themselves with good people, that seeing uh, the media in the 70s and 80s and 90s through the lens of somebody who sought excellence, right, who believed in getting two sources, not one, who believed in, in the veracity of what you're writing and, and knowing that if you were credible as a journalist, uh, you would be the first one to get your calls returned by Galen Weston or whomever, Conrad Black, if there was a stake of messages on their desk after an earnings call or a story broke the news. If you uh, had high ethics and professionalism and you weren't friends and you weren't there to uh, curry favor, but to give them a fair shake. And and, and that's kind of when I um, whine about the state of some media journals in this day and age or approaches to kind of how news and opinion have morphed into some kind of single uh, vein of so-called reporting. Uh, it really is with that backdrop of, you know, I grew up with people like Michael Enright on the CBC radio and Joey Slinger at the Toronto Star and these, you know, icons in Dalton Camp and in their in their roles as columnists or what have you. And, and just, uh, you know, I yearn for those days when, you know, journalists could uh, – could rise above all of us and frankly teach us and show us the way. Yeah, it sounds like authenticity and transparency were really at the core of what your dad and your parents were teaching you about how to, you know, speak publicly and also respect it. Yes, which I suffer from. Yeah, authenticity I suffer from now. But it, you know, I as I 
tease people at the bank when I first joined. You know, the problem with authenticity is, of course, you don't always get maybe what you hoped for, but at least it's authentic, and you better be you better be careful what you wish for. Yeah, and you kind of glossed over the the photography part, but I did read that you also took a photo of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip when they were visiting Ottawa, as you mentioned, in 1982. That must have been a pretty cool experience at 16 years old. I've obviously had the luxury of being around the media and therefore being comfortable with it and, and turned it into a job. And, and uh, you know, when you can go and see Freddie Mercury at Queen when you're 15 and take pictures and have that and be McLean's or be 14 and, you know, go on a bus, the Voyager bus to Ottawa and get pictures of uh, Trudeau at a funeral. And I have to be on the right side of the situation and the working CP news photographer was on the wrong side. And so my picture moved and wound up in the star in the globe uh, at the time. And, you know, it was just, you know, I think back now, you know, getting, having your parents letting you get in situations where you can learn and grow and frankly be entrepreneurial, which wound up being very helpful later in life. Um, you know, these are things that in this environment as a parent myself, you know, we don't do enough of, I think for a variety of reasons that might be well-founded, but gosh, uh, this will cost our kids. And having benefited from that, um, you don't want to lead, you know, you want to buy something, you know, go and lead, go and earn it. And uh, those are really helpful life lessons for sure. Yeah, that's great advice. And as a young parent myself, I definitely think about that now with my own daughter. Uh, So thank you for sharing that. You know, you did obviously spend some time in Parliament Hill, as you mentioned, in your 20s, you were known as the Gen X wonder kid, serving as the EA to Senator Hugh Siegel, obviously in Brian Mulroney's uh, prime minister's office. You know, what was that like rubbing elbows with the political elite of this country at such a young age? And how did it impact the ways you thought about politics throughout the rest of your life? When I got there in 88, uh, I met some people who'd been uh, in my father's area in the early 70s. And they said, uh, don't stay here very long, because if you do, you'll never leave. And that was probably not unhelpful advice at the time. Look, the 88 election was a really big deal, right? The free trade uh, debate was a binary. If, you know, if liberals won, if John Turner was elected, we wouldn't have had free trade. And and so that was kind of my, at 22, that was my entree. And then uh, wound up at defense and saw Iraq one, uh, the Oka crisis, and a variety of things uh, through that. Uh, base closures, you know, just the impact of the military as it contracted both domestically and from Germany. Because the world was safe now and we didn't need to worry anymore about uh, having people overseas and doing things. And big establishment in London, Ontario or Saskatchewan, wherever we could pull all those things back. And of course, you know, you realize decades later how short-sighted that was. But uh, when you're looking for pennies under the under the couch, uh, you know, military bases are a normal place to go. But uh, in '91, when Hugh Siegel became chief of staff, he asked me to join him in the PMO, and you know, to be 25, 26, and going to cabinet and representing the prime minister and watching Michael Wilson and Harvey Andre and Barbara McDougall and Don Mazankowski and all these kind of very smart, powerful, thoughtful. Uh, considered and considerate people there uh, with the levers of power was a great, obviously great training. Uh, Michael Sabia uh, was around the Privy Council, uh, Paul Tellier, some very talented uh, public servants as well, uh, Kevin Lynch's and uh, Dave, um, uh, people who became uh, Chancellor, CN, Rail, CEO, whatnot. These were all folks I got to grow up and see and see what excellence looked like, no matter whether elected officials or on the public service side. You know what? You couldn't uh, couldn't imagine what that is like. And uh, this is before email, so everything is by phone. Everything is uh, is obviously uh, you know communications are different, and uh, getting things done were different. And you know it's interesting in that era, you were supposed to solve problems. You were supposed to say no. You had to say no. Um, the idea that the center was controlling, which became, you know, under Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, the media lament. You know, the reason why you 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 have uh, a privy council office and a prime minister's office is not to make sure one's coordinated. It just was more subtle because it was telephone and it wasn't all in capitalized emails. Yeah, it makes me think when you say those things, Mark, um, how when people say, how are you connected to somebody? Uh, a lot of times it's just a LinkedIn connection uh, and there's not really actually a personal relationship, but you grew up in a place and a time where it had to be a handshake or uh, a telephone call or uh, a coffee or drink meeting. Like a tone even. I mean, it's so interesting, uh, you know, how humans size each other up as, as people will do watching videos right now. I mean, it's just um, the email, of course, that dispassionate, uh, soulless kind of communication, even to uh, do deals. Um, you know, even, you know, just you cannot compare. And, uh, and we've obviously done ourselves a disservice as a result, I think. 
A hundred percent. I think the generation now, and, and I'm a part of that, you know, obviously as a, as a VC and a GP trying to raise capital from LPs, I can't cover all the LPs across North America uh, in a handshake or a meeting, but by God, I mean, going out for just a quick chat or a walk makes a huge difference versus a, a Zoom call or uh, an, a LinkedIn message when building real relationships. And that I think has lost. And for LPs, they get a chance to see you in different contexts, right? You don't even know that they're sizing up how you deal with the waiter, how you deal with the parking lot attendant, you know, uh, what kind of car you drive, whether you like it or not. I I mean, these are all um, subtle things that uh, factor into their consideration. One LP would look at my ring every time to see if I was married because he figured that if I wasn't married all of a sudden that that would increase the risk at the fund. Right. Yeah, I know. I, I, I remember very vividly growing up on the trading desk at RBC and, and moving to New York and seeing all the different ways people are sizing everybody up wherever you walk. Uh, and we'll get into that time in your life. But you know, you left Ottawa in 93, obviously on the advice of not staying there for too long or else you get stuck forever. Well, no, to be authentic, uh, Kim Campbell was elected leader and I'd seen her oh, at cabinet and thought she uh, was not going to succeed uh, as a leader, even if she won the election, that it would have been horrible. And uh, so I got out of town on June 15th, 93, and uh, had great plans to go to business school uh, at Western as MBA. Thank you for the authentic answer. <laughs> and you considered taking an MBA, but decided uh, to maybe have a chat with the former chair of the Bank of Montreal, Matthew Barrett. Um, who basically said, if you come here, I'll give you a business degree, which turned out to be the right decision. Well, here, here this guy. Imagine someone 44 who uh, his dad was a band leader in Ireland. Uh, Matt Barrett went to Christian Brothers High School, never been to university, started out three rungs below Teller at a branch, uh, became chairman of a bank at 44. You know, when, when he tells you, I can give an MBA, it's a pretty compelling, um, pretty pr- compelling argument. Yeah. And you started out as a teller as well until you moved into the investment banking world. Well, actually, I, I actually he went from teller to chairman's office. I went from the chairman's office to a teller. Once I decided that I was interested in finance and, you know, it's, obviously it's why I got uh, didn't do the business school thing. I wanted to learn finance the hard way instead of the academic way. Yeah, I wanted to do a training program. And so I self-selected to be an assistant branch manager and a teller and personal lender and commercial lender and all those jobs that you know, I thought you couldn't be a banking executive someday if you'd never uh, worked at a wicket for a while. And, uh, you know, I was right. It's, you know, that, that you know, that's a, it's, a, it's a client service business that, you know, the financial services industry, you know, whether you're a venture capitalist or whether you're a, a banker or a private equity or whatever it is. I mean, obviously, if you can't um, connect with those people and help them achieve their dreams, their goals, financial, otherwise, uh, you're going to be a failure. And so great training. You know, when I go into the bank, which I, I still do, I actually try to spend a lot of time talking to the tellers and giving them a little bit of like advice of my career path, because I know that they all have those aspirations, but there's not a lot of people going to banks these days. A lot of the times it's old retired people who are just there to cash in a little check here and not have a lot of engagement about where these people want to go. Uh, but I've heard of those stories. Uh, and a lot of people I worked with at RBC had those stories as well. Uh, and I feel like that, that that's lost, that engagement with the, the wicked and the teller. Look, you're, you're dealing all day long with a whole stream uh, of folks re- representing every facet of society, business people and retirees, as you mentioned, and, and whatnot, and folks who've got to do an RSP contribution, and they have no idea where to start. And my grade seven teacher, English teacher, Jim Calhoun, walked into the branch when I was a teller trainee and looked down the aisle and shouted, what are you doing here? I thought you were in the prime minister's office. So that was fun. Yeah. Well, there's one story I remember uh, when I was on the desk at RBC, a gentleman was a teller uh, and he was working one day and it was at the end of uh, bonus season on Bay Street. And a gentleman came in and, and had a check to deposit. And I think it was around half a million dollars. And he looked at him, he said, sir, do you mind if I ask you, what do you do? He goes, oh, I work as a trader upstairs. And he goes, do you get checks like this often? He goes, yeah, sort of. He goes, okay. And from that moment on, he went out and tried to figure out how he can get onto the trading desk himself. And and those are those inspiring stories that you get to hear eventually for people who start off in the teller world. So uh, I'm glad to hear that impacted you as well. But you spent some time, obviously, in the banking world. You know, what was that training like in those days? And how did you kind of use the time uh, spent in banking to impact your views on capital markets within Canada and around the world globally? There, there was a trading program and I was taught uh, debits and credits. I was taught... Uh, how to figure out uh, how to lend money at the most basic level. And uh, as someone who's a poli-sci grad, 
uh, you know, was I was a luxury to have somebody invest in that. I was at a political fundraising uh, event, and uh, the president, Ezra Burns, at the time, a guy named John McNaughton, went on to be the founding CEO of the CBP Investment Board. I see what I was doing, and I said, I'm working at a branch. You should be an investment banker. And that sounded pretty good. So I, uh, he recruited me in 1996. And of course, if you're going to learn the hard way, they got to throw in the deep end, which is M&A associate. And so I got paired up with a very patient, kind uh, young man who was very, very good at modeling. And it was his task, among other things, to teach me how to do it. And, uh, you know, you work on deals, big and small, um, billions of dollars of transactions in the course of that time in your uh, veal calf feeding pen, as we would call them. And, uh, you know, it's 30 Saturdays, it's 48 Sundays. And uh, I know that is a negative in the eyes of many, but geez, you learn way faster. Uh, and if you don't like it, you can quit. But if you do uh, find it helpful in building your repertoire of skills, uh, you know, learning M&A, seeing both sides of transactions, good and bad, later in life sure became helpful when it came time to do workouts. Just understanding the couple markets um, from that lens, how M&A and equity uh, intersect and support, uh, you know, mutually support each other for companies' growth. Uh, all that was integral as part of, uh, you know, making Wellington work when I wound up in that business. Before we get into Wellington, you brought up a very interesting thing that you kind of glossed over, which is how it's viewed today that those types of hard work ethic on weekends is frowned upon from a large swath of uh, today's graduates. And I grew up in a time where you had to spend a lot of that time. So let's just peel that layer back for one layer, if we don't mind. What I think about how time is spent at the early part of your career, it's not about the work you're doing but it's about the people you get to learn from and absorb from and the exposure to as many different problems and as many different solutions, even if you're not formalizing your own opinion. And that's what I tell our team that work for us at Ripple. I say, I don't care about your thoughts on this company the first time you meet them. Until you've met a thousand companies, you don't know what horse to bet on. So I just want you to meet a thousand companies. And I want you to sit through all the crappiest presentations and all the stuff you have to see to get there. That's what I tell my team, but that takes time. It takes a lot of commitment. So what are your thoughts on how people view spending extra time on things that may not be valuable, but that set the foundation for when things do matter, that they be able to judge what's good and bad? You know, if you go to the bakery on Sunday for Mother's Day to buy croissants fresh and the owner of the bakery is behind um, the uh, till ring in your bill, I mean, that person's an entrepreneur who's working on Sunday because that's the business requires. And here you are in there, uh, in your luxury, having the day off, hopefully uh, not doing so from your, you know, your Bay Street uh, associate or analyst job. Well, okay, right there's a sign about what, uh, you know, a success factor that, you know, doing what the business requires to succeed. And, uh, you know, close on Mother's Day, and it's not going to be great in the flower business or in the, um, in the bakery business, right? And so, I don't know if it if it's if a small business entrepreneur has to uh, work weekends to be successful. Guess what? Uh, you know, shouldn't surprise you in the finance world in your early phase in particular, but also later if you want to earn two million bucks a year. How's that going to happen on a nine to five job, right? So that that I don't you know if you don't want that for yourself, don't do it. Find something else, right? There's lots of jobs out there that have very regimented work schedules, but a firefighter they work seven eight straight days. I mean, you know. Would you feel sorry for them or is that just part of their job? I mean, that's, that's the life they signed up for and, and, you know, we're all grateful for it, right? So in, in terms of um, the meetings, the reps you're talking about, I mean, I, I, you know, if you're an analyst or an associate at a, at a VC fund or venture debt fund or at a bank, that group is paying you to invest in yourself and learn. And uh, if you uh, are doing well and you're reading a lot and you are curious and asking questions and and helping the team do better, whatever it is, the sector that you're in, well, you're going to have a successful career in that line of business if you want that for yourself. But, you know, I always thought we were paying people to learn. And if they were you know meeting us halfway, well, then it was a fantastic uh, relationship. I totally agree. I mean, I think, yeah, the, the paying to learn is something that people um, may not understand. They, they think Maybe at the very beginning, it's pay to play, basically. You needed something to get in the door. You needed some foundation of experience to be able to be capable of being successful, uh, set up for success, whatever. Uh, for sure, you, you know, you didn't get in there uh, raw out of uh, 
be calm or uh, whatever it might be, for, uh, without a doubt. But uh, I, I look, if you want to be successful faster, you're going to not be able to do that uh, without uh, putting in more hours. It's you, know, you can't think about that. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the greatest entrepreneurs know that very well, especially in the early days of building their companies, as we see all the time. Or Elon Musk today. I mean, I he's not in the early days Jeez. of his. <laughs> I saw that. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about in the recent interview with Elon Musk and uh, David Faber on CNBC, he mentioned, I think he said three days a year or four days a year he takes off. Something like that. It was like a, a, less than a week, basically a year. So somewhere, somewhere between work when you choose and take three days off a year, there's probably. Uh, I don't even know what take off a, a day for him really looks like, but uh, it is pretty uh, extreme for what people say. But anyways, you know, you obviously took a, a different path after leaving BMO uh, in a way to be an entrepreneur yourself, and you launched Wellington Financial with just a tiny book of business, seven million dollars which I read that you fought for seed money with your partner, Ken Rotman, to create Wellington in 2000 as a bit of a hobby. Can you share how you raised your first seed round, maybe for our listeners to understand how difficult it is to start a merchant bank back then and you know why it's kind of similar to starting a startup and what that process was like for you? Well, in the, you, know, you remember the NASDAQ 6000 uh, you know, peak there in the 99. Um, you know, for Clarivest, Ken Rotman is the CEO there. They were looking at how, as merchant bankers, how to approach technology but couldn't get their heads around valuation at that time. You know, it was eyeballs and clicks and views and stuff that you were valuing companies on, and they were EBITDA investors. So um, they thought, all right, let's um, try and approach it through a debt product. And so they were $5 million, and my investment bank, where I was working at the time, put up $2 million of its capital. And uh, the idea was that every partner at at uh, Yorkton before became Orion Securities uh, could use this fund for a pre-IPO kind of debt financing secured lending. Uh, nobody around the, you know, the 40 or 50 people there who might have had access to that fund knew what to do with it. And so I sure did, as I've been trained um, to do some lending anyway. And uh, we did five deals and, um, and two were incredible home runs, uh, Basis 100 and MKS Software in Waterloo. And uh, Got him, John Varghese. What were those deals like? What kind of debt plus warrants? One was two million, and one was three. And um, you know, uh, the pre-money valuation on MKS was seven million dollars, and Parametric bought it for two hundred ninety-two million. Ten years later, so we did really well there. So the warrants just like totally like hit like an equity play for you, whatever. Hundreds and hundreds of IRR for sure. Yeah, it was like a three or four uh, X, and and then the debt business, you know, one point two was good, right? You don't, you know, you're not ever, you're not ever, you're not, you don't, you couldn't pretend to model for anything more than that, and nor should you. But anyway, so uh, John Varghese was running uh, one of the partners running VentureLink at the time. He had a financial services fund, and he said, you know, this is a business you've got here, and we'll be a lead investor. And I thought, oh, okay, so we thought we'll raise forty million dollars as our fund too. And keep doing investment banking, right? So you have your day job, and then you have this kind of thing there for the pre-IPO crowd when they needed a loan and the Royal Bank wouldn't give it to them. And we got $83 million, and two of the LPs said, you know, this is a full-time job, right? I said, yeah, yeah, okay. So I uh, quit the next day and uh, hired three of my colleagues, uh, Cole Manny, Jason Nadari, and Amy Ola from uh, Orion, and they joined over the coming days and weeks. And we camped at a Clairvest and ran some space and uh, round up uh, raising, raising five funds over the course of those 18 years. I never asked why did you name it Wellington if there was already a Wellington in Boston? Out my window was Wellington Street. Ah. Um, MKS was our first home run, and that was uh, you know Wellington County. The road between uh, Family Place and uh, my in-laws was Wellington 50 Side Road. Uh, the Duke of Wellington was a pretty awesome uh, uh, character in history. And, uh, you know, it was a good name. And frankly, it was, at the time, MMV, Minhas Mohammed Adventure Partners, uh, you know, people were putting their names on the door, right? That's what you did. John, John Albright, uh, you put your name on the door at your fund. And I thought that that diminished the opportunity for that firm to grow beyond its founder and to represent more than just the individual and their own, uh, you know, personality and pedigree. So, uh a name that would sound familiar to everybody, um, but wasn't personal. You know, MM was already taken, so we couldn't do MM. But that was that's a joke. 
no, of course, no conflation with like the Wellington management and no. Wasn't... When I went to Boston to conferences, people thought it was really important. Uh, and I, you know, <laughs> you know, Matt, he's a, one of your vice presidents. He, yeah, no, that's somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, as you know, whenever people would ask about that, uh, you know, the Duke of Wellington's had it for six generations or something, yeah. <laughs> and the Wellington Vickers Bomber, uh, you know, the uh, Wellington Boot Company, the Wellington Brewery. There were lots of Wellingtons, and you know, we were pertained to be a mutual fund so there was no risk of you know wellington west was doing brokerage firm and from winnipeg right i mean where do you draw the line uh, of course well it worked obviously and you obviously grew very well but faced your most difficult challenge in your career i bet uh during the 2008 global financial crisis you know what was that like and how did you survive and eventually thrive post gfc we were writing a blog collectively at the time and i think we all had our own little uh uh, shoots of insight of what we were seeing in 07 and into 08 that we were paying attention to. So the fact that it happened didn't come as a surprise, to be honest. I, I can go back now and look at stuff. When H&R Block said they would no longer finance uh, tax refunds early, like, well, why not? Like, why not? Like, you know, that was months before the financial crisis. So there was enough signs that things were getting really complicated and tight and, uh, a normal business couldn't be done because of liquidity uh, challenges. And so we kept doing deals for sure. 07 was our biggest year. We did 15 transactions that year. So it was good times for us and good times for equity as well. You know, you're in a loan portfolio and and one of your exits on tough names is always M&A. And, you know, in October of 08, uh, you couldn't give a company away for a dollar to IBM or Oracle because they weren't taking the calls and they weren't interested in in adding anything they were trying to get through the day. So, uh, you know, we held hands with our companies in, in 08 and 09, certainly had challenges, uh, as everybody would have. Of the 200 funds the Ontario teachers had at the time, the external managers, only 10 made money in 08 and 09, and we were one of the 10, which certainly set us up well for fundraising later. You know, the lesson is there will come times in your career, which we saw in COVID, when uh, all the rules change. And, uh, you know, you'd better have done a really, really good job at the front end of choosing your companies, because if you were only reliant on an equity market um, to bail you have a problem, it'll go away every five or 10 years for a period of time. And if it goes away for a long enough period of time, uh, you know, you're going to lose a lot of money. And, uh, you know, a third or half of the venture debt funds that were around in 2002 were not around in 2000 and in 10 or 12 or 14. And one of the reasons would have been for sure just how they handled that crisis and which ties back into, I think, into their original asset selection and the companies they chose. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, history doesn't repeat itself, but it definitely rhymes that is, as it is now, I'm sure for a lot of venture debt providers out there, similar to what you saw in 2008. I mean, you said you were one of the top performing ones. Was that because the ones that did survive eventually perform well, or even the ones that you had underwritten we're still above the high watermark that you needed to for them to stay afloat. The companies or the funds, you mean? The companies, the companies in your funds. M&A in the end is what uh, is what uh, would have solved the problems of the companies for sure. It was, you know, the the, the VCs allowed a transaction to happen. And, uh, you know, you um, in a couple of cases, we had to take action to make sure that that was possible. And, and you know, and in October or November of, of 2008, if a VC said, you know, we'll fund the next payroll, and then they changed their minds, you know, it was hard to blame them at the time that they you know, that they were kind of dancing along as things changed very quickly. And uh, so we certainly had to take action. And, and you know what? It, if you're in the lending business and you don't have the courage to do that, you, you know, you won't be very successful for a very long period of time. And likewise with equity, I mean, like changing management, like, like it's no different. The form of your tool and your, you know, the role you play is different on the equity side, but uh, they still all take these decisions, take courage. Absolutely. I mean, we're hearing the same stories now when SVB was falling apart, you know, there was obviously a lot of people saying, you know, sorry, term sheet issued last week, no longer valid. That was going to pay for payroll for whatever reason, you know, and we had to be the ones to say, okay, we'll do a you know, a small loan or a small convert to get you through the next three to six months if we have to. Uh, and those relationships, again, will pay off for the next 10 years. But in the short term, it, it, it definitely stinks. And you saw that. But obviously, it thrived because Wellington, you know, sold its loan book 
to CIBC in 2018, and you became the head of innovation banking at CIBC as president executive director, you know, where you took their uh, venture business to the next level. When you exited Wellington, the loan book uh, was around 900 million. The port that we had, a, the, the amount of capital we had to deploy was 900 million dollars. We had just gotten started on Fund Five, so it was 215, I think, was committed of that. Uh, we had a 300 million dollar base, which we could recirculate three times for the 900. And so, but yeah, the 250 million dollars of commitments at the time of uh, of the acquisition in 2018. And then when you recently uh, stepped down as head of CIBC Innovation Banking, what was the size of the loan book then? Was it like five billion or more? We had ten, no, ten, 10 billion. billion yeah, unbelievable. Well, uh, delivery on, on execution. I'm sure easier to say than to do. I for can sure, say. Uh, easier to say to do. Exactly. Uh, as as a lot of people uh, are learning now, it's a lot easier to invest money than it is to return capital. And so everyone is an investor until they realize it's much harder to return the capital, which you obviously delivered in spades to a lot of the people that support you over the years, but. You know, Mark, you've seen a lot over your career. Dot-com, bubble burst, 2008 financial crisis. You've been a part of, you know, pre-COVID, post-COVID, ups and downs. And you've sat with so many VCs and GPs and LPs who all think the world that they think uh, is, you know, happening in front of them is the world that, the you know, they're controlling. You know, but you didn't think like that, I think. I feel like you uh, you kind of hovered around and, and saw a fuse from every side of it, not just from the VC side but also from the banking side and from the LP side. Of all of those things that you see, where is the world that you see today changed most from where you started your career 20 plus years ago? The opportunity is bigger today. I mean, I think, and I say that because in 2000, 2001, the companies that you would remember um, even the time seemed kind of ludicrous, right? That that you just because you could raise capital at a billion dollar valuation, probably knew the company couldn't survive, uh, but for um, you know that dynamic and that you know in that in that 1999 excitement, the companies that raised at high valuations a year or two ago, I think people would acknowledge they were good companies. The valuation might have been double what it should have been, should have been might be um, 50%, 100%, 2% higher, but it wasn't a bad company, right? So, which is really different, I think, than in 99, when everyone would have acknowledged in a bunch of situations, it was just a stupid idea that got financed, that that was uh, an opportunity to play on a market versus um, a valuation issue, which I think is uh, very different in the last 24 months. And I think, so that's the first thing. And, and the second thing is that... Um, you know, in 99 and 2000 and 2001, you had to um, teach investors, limited partners, prospective in particular, of course, but even existing ones, that there was a future to this sector that merited uh, an increase in capital allocation, right? Between 2000 and 2005, a lot of pension plans in Canada got out of the sector, right? The teachers, uh, the CPP, uh, withdrew. And yet, you know, you couldn't do that today because you look out 5, 10, 25 years and you would say software and life science and biotech and and clean tech, you know, these are, uh, you know, undeniably exciting sectors that are going to grow. And as an asset allocator, which these LPs uh, all are, um, they will not be able to, I don't think, uh, turn to their investment committees and say, yeah, this software thing is going to end. I mean, you know, this clean tech thing doesn't have a business plan. Now, Individual companies may not merit uh, raising capital, but as a sector, you could now not, with straight face, pretend you couldn't allocate capital. And that's the real difference. That's why it's more exciting. Yeah, I agree. The opportunities are, are definitely much bigger. The landmines are also bigger uh, for some things to watch out for, like an SVB or something like that. But you know, you've been so vocal on educating LPs, especially in the Canadian market, to allocate more capital to the innovation and the venture capital community. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why that. There's a reason I know what you're talking about. There's a reason why that happened. So, you know, I was on the CBCA board at the time, maybe 2005, six or something or seven, uh, there was a, a VP at, at the CBP who, uh, in essence, said venture sucked. They had led Ventures West 8, they led Edgestone's venture fund, and they were going to get out. And they're going to put money into private equity, 2006, seven, and eight. And so whatever three, $400 million allocations had been in venture in Canada to grow Canadian companies by virtue, of course, of what those LP dollars wind up doing through those funds 
you know, we went five, six hundred million dollars into the KKRs and all those other, you know, private equity plays, which, uh, you know, are global leaders in what they do. And, and I, you know, because that capital is your or my capital as, as workers in this country, as future retirees, I thought, okay, well, you know, you're making asset allocation with our capital as individual Canadians. You work for us. That's who you work for. It's not some esoteric group out there. There's a real, uh, you know, there's a real beneficiary attached to that investment decision. And as a sector, you know, once you lose leads, once Ventures West, Edgestone lost their leads, guess what happened to those funds, right? Those funds couldn't raise another another later fund, uh, no matter what the returns were. So I thought, okay, I'm going to pay attention to how that money does for us. You know, how does that private equity vintage dollar, 06, 07, 08, do compared to venture? That was interesting to follow. And because it was our money, I thought I was kind of duty-bound to do it. And, you know, obviously, uh, I got a lot of flack for it because, uh, you know, at that point, no one was paying attention to how our, our uh, you know, one of the world's largest plans was doing on a performance front. And uh, senior VCs would say, you know, I really love what you're writing. I couldn't say such a thing, but I sure love it. Uh, but as a CVCA board member, I thought, you know, it was my role to kind of help bring light to the attraction of our sector and draw attention to LPs, at least not to say product is bad, because, of course, it's an important asset class for a bunch of reasons, but that you couldn't ignore venture. Right. And I I mean, just to give some context to our our listeners, you know, in 2000, the venture investment community in Canadian tech companies hit an all-time high of around 5.8 billion Canadian. By 2009, it was just a billion. In U.S. dollars, our industry was basically a rounding error, right? 0.87 compared to the U.S. It's taken us almost 20 years to get back to that 2000 high watermark of 6.2 billion in 2019, not including the last several years of record highs. But our GDP ratio of like GDP for U.S. and Canada to venture investment is a fraction. It's abysmal. And you've talked about this before. You know, why are we still so far behind attracting capital to the venture capital industry locally from our LPs uh, and also from the institutions around the country? The old saw about we're just more conservative and therefore we as Canadians don't do angel, we don't do seed. Let's say that's true. But for the you know, the 50 or 60 uh, institutional investors, uh, pension plans and endowments, uh, university and, and whatnot. You know, I, I think that uh, those that tried their hand in the early 2000s and got into the wrong um, vintage funds, um, uh, you know, kind of had a bad experience and did not do what investors should do, which is average down, right? That's uh, They didn't do that. They were true. And so they missed that kind of Shopify era when those 05, 06, 07 companies were uh, getting um, seeded and Canaxis or you know, all the names you can think of that wound up being spectacular. And then even the Constellation softwares, people were kind of, yeah, I don't know what that's about. And, you know, as investments go in our landscape, uh, you know, those are three names that have been spectacular. So, and now you're saying, oh, shit, like, oh, I mean, it's peak and I now can't allocate the peak. And so you have this kind of running conversation now for two decades where you're justifying your decision in each case. I think we just have to acknowledge that's maybe what happened. You know, if, if, uh, if a pension plan wants to invest in a U.S. fund versus a Canadian fund, like they have to make those choices. I'm not, that's their job, their fiduciary obligation, but to not be in the sector at all, given what's obviously a quarter, a third of the, of the SP 500's valuation is tied up in tech and life science and, and whatnot to, and, you know, if you're single digit low allocation to the venture space, um, you're obviously missing something. Yeah, it's definitely a lesson we've heard from a lot of our institutional investors and LPs in the U.S. It's like stay consistent because you never know when that fund five, six, or seven is going to be the Facebook fund. As long as you remain consistent with your allocation process and you're obviously upgrading your managers as often as you can while staying consistent, you'll at least have that exposure to the market. And that's the most important thing. Whereas in Canada, you're right. It's very, you know, how do I get from A to B? Are the returns there? What's the IRR? How do I compare this to real estate uh, or you know my investments in the resource sector? It's definitely an educational thing, I think. And obviously, our, our family offices haven't been around as long as some of the Boston or New York family offices that have been around for hundreds of years who have the data and the experience. But just extrapolating my own personal journey as an angel investor before becoming a VC, 
if all of my you know angel investments were dog shit, which a lot of them were in my very early years of allocating money, stopped me from wanting to continue to invest. I would never have had my first exit with Turnstile. I would never have had my next exit after that, which another you know twenty x. Those things would never have happened if I just turned it off because of the first three or four that were dog shit. And I think that's a great lesson for a lot of people who are considering allocating capital to the market, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. The ability, if you don't have a unique talent to pick those individual entrepreneurs and those business plans as an angel investor has to have to be successful, I can see why a fund strategy would make sense or even a fund to fund strategy. I mean, you can do a venture fund to fund and have 25 funds for your $10 million family office allocation if you're not comfortable doing two fives into two funds. But uh, for the big, 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 you know, multi-hundred billion dollar plans who kind of were, oh, I don't know, and then, oh, I can't get into the best funds in the world, therefore I won't try at all. Well, there have been lots of times the last 10 years when you could have shown up in Silicon Valley and said, hey, we've, you know, got $50 million here if you're open, and uh, they've been glad to see you. You know, in some of those trough years when uh, capital was tighter because of the dominator effect, if you were under-allocated to venture, you could have got into those top 25 funds if that was what you were waiting for. But, you know, now at this point, you know, you mentioned the mining industry and real estate. I mean, those are two sectors that Canadian investors have done really well by. They're consistent. And there's tax policy that supports those sectors that's unique to Canada versus France, let's say, or the U.S. Um, so maybe uh, there is some happy, happy reality there that uh, our country's policymakers for generations have kind of assisted, subtly, intentionally assisted the real estate and the mining and oil and gas sector. And, and uh, guess what? You know, Canada's a global center for mining finance as a result. Yeah. I mean, you've spoken about this as well. You said that the odds are heavily stacked in uh, entrepreneurs' favor who start businesses in the resource sector or the real estate sector versus when compared to the tech and innovation industry. You know, what is the role of government in giving everyone a fair start or even just not giving everyone a head start who's starting in the resource sector versus innovation? Well, look, take the labor-sponsored fund tax credit, right? You know, it's a tens of billions of dollars in Quebec are invested in that sector, helping grow old economy companies and new economy companies. Delta McGinty as Premier Ontario uh, canceled that program here in Ontario 15 years ago or something. And we don't have tens of billions of dollars in the SME economy through that program as a result. And this is a federal tax credit that one province matches and one doesn't match. So guess what? You don't get that extra capital going into that sector. And whether you like the fund structures or not, Quebec has sure uh, had lots of success in the sector. Um, and the province supports it. And number one politician, political stripe, is in charge in, in Quebec City. They um, they support that program. So, you know, the flow-through shares, lots of, uh, of our, your my friends can debate whether or not that is a, can be usefully applied to the clean tech sector or to um, the biotech sector or medical devices or whatnot. If a wind farm in PEI can access flow-through shares, and um, and a biotech or life science company cannot, let's make sure we have some other program that's providing that capital in a way that might be more tailored. But uh, if you're not allowing seed investors to access both, well, then you're not going to get both, are you? British Columbia has certainly tried an angel tax credit, and yet we don't have one here in in Ontario, let's say. Um, You know, I always tease people, if you you start a, a honeybee business in your backyard, put a sign in your driveway and saying honey for sale and it's five bucks a jar. Uh, the money you lose on that honeybee business advertising on you know Google and buying ads at Toronto Star, you can write off against your income, right? If I invest in your startup and I lose my 20 grand, I need a capital gain on my next deal to write, you know, to take that deduction. To take to bring back that loss into my into my life. So where the tax system is intentionally promoting you to open up a honeybee business, or a salon in your basement, or a dental implant shop, but not a software company or a biotech or life science or clean tech. Well, guess what? You're not going to get those. And if that's what we want as a country, and I every day I read in Globe Mail op-ed pieces about what we want as a country from uh, the Monk Policy School, for example, and certainly everyday politicians talk about it. Well, let's do a better job at actually connecting those dots. 
Yeah. I mean, the banks are more willing to lend also to those businesses than the tech businesses or prior. Finally. But like, yeah, exactly. The QSBS in the US, I think is $10 million for five years. In Canada, the capital gains exemption is what up to 1.3 million now for two years. But it's really hard to get that, especially when you do M&A that doesn't translate into a a share purchase. If it's an asset purchase, you're totally screwed. Then uh, again, on, on your example of how you know, there's just more support for flow through shares. Maybe give our audience an example of like what a flow through share actually does, how the, the capital expenditures flow through to the bottom line so that you pay obviously less in taxes. But explain those. The money that that mine is investing in digging a hole and trying to find a new resource, uh, you get to take that right off instead of the company. Obviously, software companies have uh, SRED claims, but proportional to uh, the benefit to the investor. You know, the investor doesn't obviously get that benefit. The company gets that. Well, we have capital dividend accounts. I mean, when you do a loss is built up, when you sell a company that you can pass through to Canadian shareholders. Right. But but for that angel investor, that does not promote investment. So guess what? We get we get investments in oil and gas and mining uh, because the tax system, uh, because it's worked for decades, I guess you could say. Whether it's a good or a bad idea for our sector, I'm only ever advocating that what, if not that, then what? And shrugging and shrugging is all we've gotten this last 20 years. Mark, why are we so okay with medium exits in the Canadian tech industry, in your opinion? I don't know, because people, as my former co-head of M&A at Nesbitt would say, they need fur coats. <laughs> and uh, you need some fur coat money. And so, you know what? If you're getting five million bucks instead of 10, well, you can get a fur coat. So uh, that is obviously a very callous way of thinking about it. It used to be. You know, uh, you know, Day, the former head of Descartes uh, would say that you know a Canadian company would trade at six times revenue, and a good U.S. company in the same space would trade at ten times revenue, right? And I think over the last ten or fifteen years, that that differential has collapsed almost to nothingness, perhaps, um, for the public company. So that's good. Uh, that means you're not disadvantaged to be a TSX listed company versus on the New York or the Nasdaq, and frankly. Because of scarcity effect, you're probably maybe better served to be listed here in Toronto, where a small cap name is $250 million market cap and a U.S. small cap name is $3 billion, right? So uh, you don't get research coverage uh, in the U.S. at 250 but in Canada you would. So there's lots of uh, real luxuries we have, I think, in our country on the capital market side. You know, on the exits front, I don't know, Miranda and Bel Air, and there's, a, you know, there's no, no end of... Uh, Magnet. I mean, there's no end of exits. Um, what they would have got had they waited five or ten years longer, you know, it's easy for us to say in, in hindsight that that entrepreneur sold out too soon. Frankly, putting federal tax dollars into growth equity funds with the idea that if we do just ten of these deals, companies will wait longer to sell suggest you can control the decisions of the founders and of the board when that offer comes in for a 30% premium. And, you know, by law, you can't ignore a 30% premium. The Securities Commission won't allow you. And if that valuation is four times revenue, not 14 times revenue, that premium is still sufficiently high to warrant the board taking it seriously. So, you know, are you selling too low at four times? And it's, it's, I think it's a mux game. Do you think uh, some of these small cap Canadian tech companies that went public uh, in the last uh, hype cycle are going to delist because of how, one, illiquid the shares are now and how poorly they're being traded and treated by the Canadian public markets? Small caps are always illiquid, so that's not new. We've seen it with uh, e-automotive. We're potentially going to see it with other names, but you see so many of these names that are trading you know, $25,000 notional a day, 50000 notional a day. It should never be public. The cost to be public alone between auditing and insurance costs are too high. Well, so should never be public that, you know, there's, you, you go public to access capital, right? In theory, you go public for more visibility to your client base. You, you're giving um, transparency to your potential customers and staff to see about, oh, that business has got, you know, $8 million bucks in the bank or $208 million in the bank. I mean, there's lots of good things about being public. It costs a million bucks a year, obviously, or something between the legals and the reporting and the IR and whatever. And and you have to calculate that into the cost of what advertising would be. And the distraction, the management team, of course, uh, being public is for them. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like, is venture a good idea? And is being public a good idea? You know, Facebook took venture, Google took venture, Shopify took venture, they're all public. So, 
you know, clearly you can succeed uh, if you've got a winning business model, um, despite being public and despite the distraction. If a controlling shareholder, you know, the automotive situation goes public and and has a plan to do a roll-up and that access to capital for lending and for equity helps them achieve that, awesome. If it turns out that the dynamics in that sector changed in the in the used car auction market, well, and, you know, that's specific to that company versus, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, some of the deals that went public in 2021 that were just a stupid idea, they shouldn't have been public, of course, but that's not a function of the stock market. That's just that uh, they, you know, some investment bank took them public and they shouldn't have, and, and uh, but that's not new to this last cycle. No, definitely not. And you'll probably see it again in the next cycle. I mean, Mark, have you ever felt jaded by the tech industry or the venture industry? No, I, I, there's so many good things happening every day of the week um, that I think it's exciting. And I think that it's it's motivations, uh, you know, trying to figure out somebody's motivations matters. If you're a lender, if you're an investor, if you're an employee, of course, that's important. Um, and we all have to make our own decisions. But, uh, you know, the great things that have happened in, in, in our sector on this side of the border since uh, I got involved um, – Wealth has been created, jobs have been created, new technologies have been advanced, um, problems have been solved, and uh, and frankly, we're doing better than we were doing ten and twenty years ago. So, uh, au contraire, I think it's uh, I'm really proud, of, frankly, of, of what's gone on and and seeing people who were you know 24 now 44 and who are thriving in the sector is also um, and frankly better what they were better now than they ever were before to doing what they're doing and. And those who might be 10 years younger, I mean, that extra five or 10 years that people have added to their experience under their belt the last uh, little bit of time has, uh, I think, paid dividends and frankly will help them weather this storm that that they're all that we're all in right now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, speaking of exciting, though, Matt Roberts recently wrote a blog post explaining why you would be the perfect fit for politics, given all your success in business and politics at the Billy Bishop Airport Authority. So I got to ask the question. Will you do it? Look, these are uh, complicated uh, topics. <laughs> um, you know, we all want someone good to get into politics and go and help solve the problems of the world for all of us as taxpayers and industry participants or whatever. You want your tree protected at your window, whatever it is, right? We all want that naturally. You know, I've had lots of fun being around, uh, you know, the Windsor Detroit Bridge and obviously Billy Bishop getting that tunnel uh, done and and whatnot. You know, you can play a role as a business person in around the the political sector without running. But uh, at the same time, uh, you know, I think Matt's point is that we need people. Our sector needs people in the right uh, positions, whether that's within the bureaucracy or whether that's within the elected offices, to um, connect the dots for people. Right? Our citizens only know what they know, and it's up to the folks who are experts whether academics or opinion leaders or policymakers to help uh, explain why a $13 billion uh, uh, contribution to a battery plant might be good for this, but what $13 billion across a thousand companies might mean. I learned the hard way at university to never say uh, no uh, to stuff because uh, situations, of course, change and you get excited and compelled to, to do something professionally or personally. But uh, yeah, Matt's uh, was very kind remarks and generous and 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 whatnot, but um, it's a complicated topic. You know, the 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 political environment that I grew up in as an eight year old, or even as a as a twenty four year old, is just so different now. People always thought politicians, JFK, Ethan Baker, uh, you know, whoever it might be, did it for certain reasons, but that there was you people went in, I think, with the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's gone now. I think people assume you're there for the wrong reasons until proven otherwise. And you know, it's a pretty painful way to, you'd want to take a job with that kind of dynamic, right? And uh, social media, like, like, if you don't belong to social media, therefore you can pretend it doesn't exist, right? That you can kind of solve for, but the impact on your family and, and uh, you know, kids and, and whatnot is, uh, that is different. And uh you know, Bill Morneau talked in his book about drones flying over, uh, you know, his cottage, right? I mean, that wasn't happening 10 or 20 years ago for a bunch of reasons that aren't just technology. 
selfishly, I would love to see you in a role, but also would never wish that upon anyone to have to go through that with their family. So well, isn't that the irony, right? That that's the thing. Yeah, exactly. I know you're a huge fan of Pearl Jam and so am I. Definitely not as big as you though. For our audience that doesn't necessarily know the band or love the band as much as you, can you explain why you fell in love with Eddie Vedder and Jeff Ament and Mike McCready and Stone and, and what the band has done for you personally? Uh, my mother had uh, terminal colon cancer and uh, and just talked about living life to its fullest uh, when she was alive. So our kids were, uh, were little and... Uh, Pearl Jam announced a tour, and I thought, well, you know, maybe I could combine, you know, seeing the world and uh, seeing some shows and taking the kids with me and living that together. Because if this was my last year on the planet, well, then we would have we would have that together. They'd have the memory, and I'd and I'd enjoy living that moment. And uh, it became a really useful uh, tour, which I uh, every parent I I would give this speech to. If you like tennis, if you like the Formula One, if you like art or opera or whatever it might be, uh, you know, uh, Dave Matthews Band, and, you know, you see a show in Austin, Texas, or in Montreal, or in Milan, and, and you can get yourself there with points or what have you, and take your kids with you, um, whether they're 7 or 17, and, and show them the world, uh, small or large, um, and share that together, you know, the imprint that you're all uh, i think experiencing together is worth it and in the case of pearl jam the fact that uh, uh music was good and the fact that they had certain uh, political views which were you know speaking of authenticity and in public engagement um you know some obviously uh, folks in music business are much more involved than others and, and pushing the needle and on topics uh, gun control or abortion or what have you in a way that you know society for them is important. Uh, these were all kind of things that I, I kind of got, and uh, and we've had some fun doing it. And uh, I've my poor son, he uh, by fourteen, I'd burned him out. But thank goodness that my daughter uh, stepped into the breach, and so uh, she's picked up the slack the last few years. That's amazing. I'm definitely going to take that idea and run with it with my kids. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. Blame, tell your spouse, blame me, blame me. No, no, we're huge Tragically Hip fans. We saw them all together growing up as kids together. That's the band that brought us together. And every night before bed, we play a Tragically Hip song for our, our kid. So that's awesome. What is your favorite PJ song and why? And I'll tell you mine. Uh, well, uh, it rotates. If you take Alive out, because I think you have to, uh, uh, you know, Rearview Mirror and Hail Hail and... It, it rotates around porch. There's okay. a 12 minute version of porch. That is pretty yeah. incredible. I'd say for me is release. Um, I'd say, I mean, I love all of them elderly woman, but for me, release is one of the most powerful songs I've ever listened to. It's long. Uh, I can close my eyes and, and literally brings out everything. So it's probably one of the most powerful songs I've listened to. The problem is it's an opener. And so, you know, within know. the first 20 seconds of the show without you to get it, and then you can be disappointed yeah. the rest of the night. But. Yeah, exactly. That's true. Um, do you think Eddie should have sung the lead on Hunger Strike instead of Cornell? No, I think Matt Cameron, the drummer of both Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, would say that Chris did all the Chris wrote all the songs, and and so Eddie kind of wasn't even planning on doing it and tagged along, and then came out of nowhere to sing. So uh, I, I think uh, he always saw it as uh, someone else's project, which it was, and he was kind of just assisting. Which uh, you know, uh, part of why I think that. Uh, you know, I, th I think he appeals to so many people around the world and, you know, in South America and Europe and and obviously North America and Central America is because that everybody in public life has to have some ego. But as as musicians go, uh, there aren't very many musicians who push more people out in front of them, Mumford and Sons or whomever it might be, and help them have careers or, or get reborn, get uh, their careers restarted again, as he's tried to do with Lance Morissette a few months ago in a California festival where he was trying to bring her. So he's a unique guy in that way where, you know, Mick Jagger, I think, is usually in the front, <laughs> not at the back. Yeah, that's very true. What's the furthest you traveled for a Pearl Jam concert? I think the worst story, if you ask my family, was we had to get yellow fever shots uh, to go to uh, Porto Alegre, Brazil, because there was yellow fever there, and uh, which is the uh, which is the Detroit of uh, of uh, of Brazil. And uh, you know, when you need to get a yellow fever shot to see a concert, you are uh, crazy, <laughs> and your kids <laughs> have to get it too. And that was a real that was a real uh, aha moment. I think when there's some discussion, was it worth it? Look, uh, it was. 
it like Burger King was the best thing you could eat there uh, in that town. But it was a great show, and uh, we we had just uh, the kids had just met Eddie in um, Argentina, and so they were really uh, really excited about uh, you know they feel you know when you're nine or ten eleven you think this rock star knows you right it really makes for uh, gives you some energy to tag along to. Uh, Places you otherwise would never get to in, in your life with your parents. But look, we've been we've seen the Andes Mountains, and um, we've been to you know we went to Krakow, Poland to see a show, and then my wife found um, a way for us to go to Auschwitz. And you know for uh, you know for four wasps, uh, you know in July <laughs> of uh, summer, you know it's I'm not like you're not planning a family vacation to go to Auschwitz. Um, but gosh, what a life experience that was to be able to go and wow. do that. And that was the highlight of that trip, not going to Madrid or Barcelona, but to go to Auschwitz and to experience that and for our kids to experience that. And to, unless you've been there firsthand, um, you can't imagine what that must have been like. And uh, so I, uh, uh, this is all part of why I just think it's such a useful uh, tool to, to take the kids around the world, and if you know if it's a three-hour show in Milan, and they get to see Venice and Rome as a result, well, then um, you know everyone's happy. Lots of pasta. Well, that's an amazing, uh, amazing trip that you did with your family. I'm I'm so happy to hear that you did that. Um, thank you for sharing that. Uh, I think the last question I'll ask before we jump into our fast favorites are: What are your other passions in life now that you're no longer day to day at CIBC and things that you're uh, continuously trying to get better at? Look, I'm trying to. Uh, I had 16 or 17 books uh, I had to read uh, that I'd been hadn't had time to tackle, so I'm knocking those off, which has been fun. To, uh, you know, when you get 300 emails a day and it's a seven day a week job, you there's not a ton to think about what's next. And, you know, uh, there's two choices. You stay in the role and you kind of try and um, figure that out and you jump one day. Or what I thought I would do is just the opposite of that and just uh, leave on a high note. Uh, you know, the firm is in great shape there at CBC and uh, and just have airtime to think uh, about uh, what next to do and uh, have my first summer off since grade three or something. And we'll see. And certainly, uh, Raising their fund is an obvious thing. Joining somebody else's platform and and doing uh, you know software debt ain't going away, and the clean tech and life science economy still need capital, and uh, or something you know, completely different. So whether that's uh, a public service role or a business role, uh, you know, time will tell. Uh, well, don't rush too fast. Enjoy the summer. You deserve it, Mark. It's been amazing to watch your career. Um, you know, last thing we asked before our guests jump off are your fast favorites. So first off is your favorite podcast. Well, live on four legs, I will throw it there as a Pearl Jam as a as a Pearl Jam podcast. How many times have you seen PJ Twenty? Did I ask you that? No, I think I, I I'm not at fifty out on the concert front, but we're getting close, <laughs> getting close. All right, favorite newsletter or blog? Paul Wells, yeah, Paul Wells is writing a really great Substack, former McLean's uh, columnist, and uh, he's uh, I think a friend of mine that says he's the most astute observer in Ottawa right now, and it's it's worth paying for. Okay, favorite tech gadget? Yeah, Eero. Mesh Wi-Fi. I will tell, I cannot believe that folks have not ripped out all their little beacons they get from their cable company or the telephone company. Nice. It works, huh? It's awesome. That's great. I just got Starlink up at the cottage. It's amazing. Favorite new trend? Taking the summer off. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> Favorite book? Look, my dad wrote a book about uh, the last best hope, you know, how to start and grow your own small business. And uh, I, I think whether you're a life science or tech or clean tech entrepreneur, I think there's some lessons in that that uh, are worth uh, are worth understanding that are helpful no matter what sector you're in. So I'll, I'll plug my dad. All right. Give another plug for him on the last one, but their favorite life lesson. You know, being frank, being authentic, there's lots of different ways to describe it. You know, I, when you're having a conversation with someone on your team uh, that's going doing really well or they're having challenges, if they know you come at every topic, whether you're a client or a LP or your supervisor or whatever they might be, and they know you approach things authentically, I think it's it makes for a much better work environment and uh, the trust factor is way higher. You know, transparency is a phrase that is um, thrown around now as a great way to be. But, you know, my mother talked about this uh, when I was young and, you know, showing your face uh, is what she would say. And there's lots of different ways to describe it. But, uh, you know, the best way to have a fantastic work culture 
is for folks to know where they stand, what they need to do to get ahead, and what they need to do to do better. And and if they screwed up, you know, there's no shouting. That doesn't accomplish anything, you know. But how to how to you know what to learn from that, right? And, and all that ties back to just simply authenticity or frankness or or transparency. But um, uh, it's not hard. But the risk is people won't like what they hear. Um, and then you won't be loved. And if you're not loved, you'll, you know, you'll feel less of yourself. And, and obviously some people yearn for that. And I get that. But, you know, I also know uh, if somebody is, um, their eyes are not actually connecting with what their lips are saying. And, um, and uh, it's hard to do business with folks. Uh, it's hard to have folks around your team who, uh, if you, what you're hearing and what you think they're thinking are different because, uh, you know, trust at the end of the day is what drives successful businesses and investments and board relationships. And as you'll find right now with the rounds you're talking about where folks are passing the hat and someone who said they would fund their program two weeks ago has now changed their minds because uh, they never talked to their partners about that first. Um, you know, whatever whatever moment that that, uh, that situation arises, I think it all ties back to the same simple saying, which is authenticity. Yep. That's it. Authenticity and transparency. Thanks so much for joining us in the tank today, Mark. Really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to keeping things going with whatever you do next. Thanks again, Mark. Okay. Appreciate your time and your interest. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcast or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Matty B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. Till next time, 